Hello and welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks. And I'll say for both of us, we're a little tired, a little punch drunk after a very long night. Uh, Super Tuesday for the ages, Mary Alice. That was... uh, That was an astounding evening, followed now by an astounding morning news this morning that Michael Bloomberg is suspending his campaign. Elizabeth Warren is assessing her path forward. We are down to a two-person race, uh, and those two people have traded frontrunner status even just overnight. Uh, Bernie Sanders went in, everyone expecting that he'd have a huge Super Tuesday, and now it is Joe Biden with the delegate lead and in the poll position for the nomination. Mary Alice, what just happened? Could you imagine if you were a Democratic supporter that was following every twist and turn of this race for a year and then like happened to go on vacation the last three days? You wouldn't even understand the landscape you're coming back to. I mean, Joe Biden's team was uh, was getting tough questions about his potential path forward after really poor uh, performances in the first few states. And then, wow, that South Carolina momentum just producing a comeback that we just have not seen. I mean, the what what I think Super Tuesday showed us was the power of those endorsements, the power of of coalescing um, from the party level around Joe Biden and and look the power of his brand in a lot of these states where people feel like Joe Biden represents something that is familiar and fun and comfortable and I think that that uh, carried the day. And uh, one week ago today uh, uh, was the day that Jim Clyburn offered that endorsement. Uh, and we didn't really know what it meant at the time. We thought Biden would probably do well in South Carolina. But starting Saturday uh, began one of the most extraordinary four days in politics I think we will ever experience. Uh, the blowout win by Joe Biden, followed by the dropouts of Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, the endorsements by those two, plus Beto O'Rourke on the eve of Super Tuesday, uh, and then an absolute massacre across the board uh, for for Joe Biden. He won North Carolina, Virginia, Alabama, Arkansas, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and then three biggies, Minnesota, where Amy Klobuchar's endorsement helped a lot. Massachusetts, which was a, a death blow to Elizabeth Warren. That's her that's her home state. She came in third there. And then Texas, a big, diverse state that uh, that has all those pockets of liberals, all the Latino voters that we thought and, and were Bernie Sanders supporters. Somehow he was able to win the state of Texas and put an exclamation point on a huge night. Look, the delegates are still being awarded. Bernie Sanders' team is going to say, wait till all the dust settles, wait and see the final math. But these states, Texas and Massachusetts, were ones that they thought they had in the bank. I mean, in the last few days, Bernie Sanders' team was hosting these huge rallies in Boston, those kind of signature Bernie Sanders events with tens of thousands of young people chanting his name. He was actually taking some heat for for potentially trying to run up the score. Uh, It was seen that way in Elizabeth Warren's home city. So to lose a state like that really um, speaks not only to to Joe Biden's strength and but to, you know, uh, uh, the, the fact that Bernie Sanders is going to have to do some serious 
um, re-strategizing in the next few days. Yeah, and there's symbolic value to that Boston-Austin corridor and the, 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 the connections there. And the fact that Bernie Sanders loses in both of those places is a very big deal. Uh, we should put in the Sanders column from last night, Vermont, his home state, also Colorado and Utah. And, and uh, Maine is still outstanding, but in all likelihood, he will have won California, which will uh, will make up for some of the delegate losses elsewhere. Uh, as of today, though, Joe Biden walks away with a, a delegate edge, a significant one from Super Tuesday. Well, just a couple of days ago, Mary Alice, we were talking about the only question is, does 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 Bernie have a 300 plus delegate lead or less than 100? And now he's looking at a deficit of, you know, 60, 70, probably by the end of the night. And they're just like I said, they're going to have to really rethink how they move forward. They never planned on having party support. In fact, they were gearing up for a fight at the convention because they wouldn't have party support. But they thought they were just going to have more voter support. And they thought they were going to keep benefiting from a very full and fractured field. Their hope was that the country, Democrats, would wake up uh, this week and see them with just more delegates. And that would start to sort of soften hearts and minds of those people that were skeptical of him. And so now, when that's not the case, they're really going to have to go much more offense against Joe Biden. We're already seeing signs of that. New ads that they're putting out that that take him on in, in almost a negative way, really challenge Joe Biden on, on his past voting record. Uh, but they're also just going to have to think about which states are must-wins for them uh, and how they handle just a total flip of the script. Yeah, and let's let's take a listen to some of what Bernie Sanders said last night in Vermont, Tuesday night, uh, in, his, in his hometown of Burlington, uh, declaring victory there, but also signaling the fight against Joe Biden. One of us in this race led the opposition to the war in Iraq. You're looking at him. Another candidate voted for the war in Iraq. One of us led the opposition to disastrous trade agreements, which cost us millions of good-paying jobs. And that's me. And another candidate voted for disastrous trade agreements. And Mary Alice, you mentioned these ads as well. He's got a new ad uh, attacking Joe Biden uh, by name and pretty explicitly um, running in Michigan. Also an intriguing one that's got Barack Obama's voice throughout it. Uh, all the candidates have done something like this, but that's uh, that's intriguing on a couple of levels. We're going to talk to uh, Obama's former campaign manager, David Pluff, in a few moments here. But uh, a whole range of Obama officials have endorsed Joe Biden in the last couple of days. And the Sanders campaign uh, believes and has been saying that, uh, that, that those folks are trying to rig the primary against them. And Bernie Sanders has taken a lot of heat in the last few weeks for uh, a back-and-forth conversation about whether or not he was interested in potentially primarying Barack Obama. Uh, Joe Biden ramped up rhetoric about how his signature Medicare for All plan was basically a rejection of Obama's signature piece of legislation. There's been this tension between some concept of the Obama legacy and what Bernie Sanders represents. Now, Normally, Bernie Sanders doesn't mind that tension. I think there's a lot of people on his team that think, you know, we win votes when we're willing to say that things weren't all just rosy and fine under the Obama administration for everyone. You know, they win a lot of independence that way. They they win different swaths of the Democratic Party. But clearly, 
not enough. And this is a real pivot for them to try to remind voters in a kind of last ditch effort that uh, that they can play nice, too, and that the party has said nice things about him as well. And 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 we should talk about Joe Biden. He's, of course, the big winner on a Super Tuesday. Uh, he I think we can take off the table, essentially, the idea of a contested convention. There really aren't significant delegates that are end up being awarded to candidates who are leaving the race. Michael Bloomberg's disappointment, I think, uh, ensured that. Uh, and similarly for Elizabeth Warren, who actually ended Super Tuesday with fewer votes than Mike Bloomberg. And, and she's got to reassess under a lot of pressure from progressives about what exactly her next step is going to be. So taking that off the table, uh, you know, the, the battle is going to be on for 1991. Uh, intriguing. Another side note on this. Bernie Sanders says whoever gets the plurality, whoever has the largest number should be the nominee. So maybe 1991 even isn't even the magic number. But taking that aside, Joe Biden now has a commanding position in this race. And he's benefited from a couple of days of just incredible publicity uh, that's fed momentum. He did this without visiting most of these states, without spending any money in most of these states. And still he wins all of those things. You talked about that, uh, that, uh, that apocryphal political observer that's been looking at all the ad buys and looking at all the staffing decisions. None of that mattered. None of that mattered because Biden got the hot hand. People parked their votes back there. And take a listen to what he had to say uh, last night in California. People are talking about a revolution. We started a movement. We've increased turnout. The turnout's turned out for us. And you want a nominee who's a Democrat, a lifelong Democrat, a proud Democrat, an Obama-Biden Democrat. Join us. There's the Obama court again in uh, in, in the vice president's uh, speech there. Look, he's got some he's got some tough states potentially ahead. Uh, Michigan is is the, the biggest one next Tuesday. That was the place where Bernie Sanders scored probably his biggest upset of the primaries last time around, in, in addition to the general election symbolism that 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 holds for Democrats. So that's going to be a challenge. But uh, the map aside, Biden has the hot hand right now. And you have to think he is the new front runner for the nomination. I don't think we should assume, though, that the uh, progressive wing is is going to fold anytime soon. I think that the ads from the Bernie Sanders team demonstrate that they have a lot of fight left in them. Progressive leaders were texting me last night saying that they were going to wake up and regroup and reassess and try to ensure that he would not be the nominee. You know, I think that for them, you have to remember, there's two kinds of anxiety. They have anxiety that someone like Joe Biden doesn't see them on the issues, but they also have anxiety about his general election strengths. And I think that Joe Biden's going to have to work to show progressives that he's going to run a different kind of campaign than Hillary Clinton, because a lot of those progressives think, think that these are the same people, this is the same kind of candidate with the same kind of vulnerabilities that doesn't attract young people, that's been sort of too removed from a new era of campaigning. And they are and those progressives are really freaked out about uh, whether or not a Joe Biden can take it across the finish line. Yeah, there's no question they're not going to give up at this point as much as the party's been rallying around Joe Biden. All that said, Biden has demonstrated a different kind of coalition, kind of an, an adaptation of the Obama coalition. You see it in his uh, very high numbers among African-American voters. You see it among it with his ability to, to attract white working class voters, which was a strength of Bernie Sanders in the past. Uh, that, that to me is significant. Absolutely. In the first few states, 
uh, Bernie Sanders, this is just one data point, really ran away with voters who didn't have a college degree and voters who who self-identified as having um, sort of existing in that lowest income bracket. Uh, Bernie Sanders is proud of that. He, you know, he talks often about representing the working class. And I think a lot of what we saw um, on Super Tuesday was that Joe Biden was really the only other candidate that could give him a run for his money with that segment of the Democratic Party. All right, Mary Alice, we are going to take a quick break. When we're back, we're going to assess Super Tuesday and talk about the road ahead for any Democrat in 2020 with a former Obama campaign manager, David Plouffe. Stick around. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Pleased to be joined here on the podcast by the former Obama campaign manager, David Plouffe, who is the author of not one but two new books, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump and a a companion book for children, Ripples of Hope. David, welcome. Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me. So tell us what just happened in the Democratic Party. You've been watching these things. You've been a player in these things for years. You know what it's like to put your organization in place and to strategize about everything. Uh, between Saturday and Tuesday, what happened and what happens next? Yeah, well, it's one of the more remarkable 72 hours in American politics. I don't think we should understate that. We're living through it, so it may not seem that historical, but it is. So I think, listen, the most important thing for me to remember is Joe Biden spent uh, all of last year as the national poll leader, strong frontrunner. It's always easier in politics to get back support you once had than that you never had. So when he struggled with debates, didn't do well in Iowa, New Hampshire, a lot of those voters who were with Biden, they parked themselves undecided. They might have become soft Bloomberg supporters. He has one good primary night, a great one, gets the Clyburn endorsement, gives a good speech. His rivals then come off the sidelines, and that sent a message to everybody who had been with him, and he clearly added to that as well, that, you know, it's time to jump back into the boat with with Joe Biden. So, um, you know, he is now the clear frontrunner. Um, just because in a delegate situation, he's got a lot more states to come where he's likely to win by big margins, which is how you win delegates, states like Florida, Mississippi, Georgia, Louisiana. Bernie Sanders will win some states, but it's hard to see a place where he's going to win two to one. So this now is going to be the battle that um, I think a lot of people anticipated from the beginning, whether whether it would be uh, Bernie Sanders versus Joe Biden, that idea of uh, more establishment, moderate wing versus the progressive wing, the head to head battle is on. How do you see that playing out? We just saw an ad that Bernie Sanders has up now um, it, wrapping himself in Obama's words, which is kind of an unusual uh, tact for him, maybe a sign of where the campaign thinks the votes have to be. But how, how does this battle play out? And, and what are your concerns as a Democrat who's writing now about the about uh, taking on Trump? What are your concerns about right. the damage that can continue to be done? Well, I, I'll first talk numbers. I'll nerd out a little bit with you. So Go for it. The, the reality is the race, I think, will probably look closer than it is. Because, again, even next Tuesday on March 10th, um, let's say Bernie wins Michigan, which he ran last won last time. My suspicion is Biden may win Michigan, but he, he did win it last time against Clinton. And it's 53-47. And then Biden wins Mississippi 75-25. The story of that night is Biden adds to his delegate lead. So I think that in reality, Joe Biden is in a commanding position, assuming he can capitalize. Um, listen, I write about this in my book. Um, I don't think if we if we fail to be Donald Trump, I think unification will not be at the top of the list, but it could be a pretty important contributing factor. So um, elected officials have a role in that. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have a role in that, but everybody does. So like if you support, let's say Biden's the nominee and you were a volunteer leader for him in Michigan, well, you need to talk to the Bernie Sanders people who are involved in that campaign and, and say, you're welcome here and I want to hear your concerns. And we, I guess 
it's not going to happen automatically, even with so many Democrats focused on beating Trump. I think a good chunk of the people who voted for Bernie will say, "Okay, I'm ready to support Biden, even if I don't feel as passionately. But a lot of people will, will take a while. And we better treat that phase of the campaign, whether that happens soon, which it may, by the way, because once it becomes clear Biden is going to be the delegate leader, Bernie may ultimately decide to end this campaign. But if it goes all the way till June, you better treat that period of the campaign as seriously as you do the fall in terms of battleground states. So, um, you know, I, I think we shouldn't be overly concerned about it, but we better treat it with appropriate seriousness. Um, and, you know, people like Barack Obama, Michelle Obama can be helpful there. But but ultimately, I think it's going to come down to a lot of people on the ground, honestly, doing the right thing. And the winner has to be super gracious. Um, uh, you know, and that's just not what the candidates say at the podium, but what folks are saying on the ground in cafes and bars. Washington state also votes next week. So the delegate math is tricky. It's hard to know how it will shake out next week. But I wanted to ask you a question about uh, the uh, the role that President Obama is playing in all of this. You know, in a lot of ways, maybe you put all of this in motion, right? You were on TV saying that this was a two-person race after South Carolina. A lot of people took notice. We saw a ton of endorsements from people close to President Obama right after South Carolina. That seemed to sort of clear the way, give a green light, put up a bat signal. Is President Obama pulling all the strings here? No. I mean, I, by the way, I love all this talk about the Democratic establishment. I've worked in politics for a long time. I, I'd like to meet this so-called Democratic establishment. <laughs> you know, the Democratic establishment is voters, you know, and it's, yeah, it's some elected officials who make independent decisions. So I'd say, listen, I, I've just, as I've commented on this election, just tried to be ruthless about math and reality. So when I said, listen, Bernie Sanders, particularly if the field remains divided, is going to likely exit Super Tuesday with a big delegate lead. I do think that got people's attention. Um, you know, and, you know, it was clear to me coming out of Saturday uh, that it was a two-person race because Sanders and Biden are the only ones capable, I think, of building a coalition to get you into 30s or 40s in terms of percent. So, by the way, on Washington State, Bernie will probably win it, but it's a primary this time. So again, if you win states 52-48, 53-47, even 55-45 in a two-person race, you're just not netting that many delegates. You know, the only way to net delegates is to win by landslides. Uh, and that's why I think Biden's in a commanding position here. Um, but uh, I think that, um, you know, what's interesting to me is the movement to Biden, both from voters and people like Mayor Pete and Amy, I'm sure there'll be more, uh, you know, it's it's... It's interesting to me because it's not like Biden has been a superstar performer. He's been good since Saturday night, had a couple better debates. And I think my question is, can he continue to do that? And my suspicion is, knowing him a little bit, uh, is he's going to feel a great deal of responsibility not to let down all the people now that are throwing all of the chips into his boat. Uh, and so um, and I do think that debate, you know, that's going to happen on March 15th is going to be happened. We could be down to a two person debate. And, you know, I helped prep Joe Biden for the debates against Ryan and Palin. I've seen him be a good debater. But, you know, that was a long time ago. He hasn't shown that in a multi-candidate field. So, um, you know, that debate's going to be a real test. And by the way, I'm happy for that, because whether it's Biden who's the nominee, which I think is very likely right now, or Bernie, um, you know, they're going to face off against Trump. 
And a one-on-one debate is much different um, than having five or six candidates up there. So, um, and I hope it's a tough debate. Uh, I am not one that's worried about the race getting tough um, because ultimately what's, what's looming the other side uh, is the Trump monster. Uh, and, you know, he's going to be seven times harder uh, than anybody in the primary field was to deal with. And yeah, we've seen voters say that they're, they're judging those debates, uh, trying to picture who could take on President Trump in a similar scenario. They're kind of casting a future general election debate. So I agree it's going to matter a whole lot. I want to ask you about another test, though, for the former vice president, uh, the young vote. We talk often about how Bernie Sanders has really uh, struggled, failed to make inroads with older voters. But I was struck by just how low uh, Biden's vote was among young voters. I mean, in Texas, where he won only 17 percent, according to our exit polls, of voters under 45. And that's not just the college kids. 45. Is that a vulnerability still for for Joe Biden? And is he going to have to change some of his message to talk to younger voters? Well, you know, let me, again, uh, you know, in 2008, incredibly competitive primary, right? So both Obama and Clinton had demographic groups that they were really doing well with and they really struggled with. And I remember getting all these questions. You know, Hillary did so well with this group. Aren't you concerned? Well, almost, you know, those voters, for the most part, come home in the general election. So I'd say a couple things. One, yes, the young people who've been part of Bernie's campaign. Now, Bernie has not shown, based on the data we have to date, uh, any real ability to really grow turnout there. But, you know, he's got passionate support. And Joe Biden, if he's the nominee, will want both the votes of those young people, but also their volunteer passion and their activities. Super important. Honestly, whether it's Sanders or Biden, the bigger problem is the turnout of variance. The young people that can make a difference uh, aren't voting in our primary because they're not primary voters. They're people who may vote in the general election or they may not. And that's where so much focus, I talk a lot about this in my book. Um, You know, honestly, the most likely reason a 19-year-old African-American male in Philadelphia is going to vote for the first time probably isn't anything Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden says. It's somebody in their community or their family really talking to them about the election. So, yeah, Hillary Clinton struggled with young turnout in some states in 2016. I don't think that's necessarily because of the primary with Bernie. She just never created the kind of energy amongst young minority voters on the scale you'd like to see. Uh, certainly in Milwaukee and Detroit. A turnout in Philadelphia was actually relatively strong as it was in Florida for her. So um, I think that that is a focus, but it, I look at it less through the prism of these primary results and who people are choosing than there's a certain number of young people under the age, of, particularly at the under, under the age of 30, we need to register and turn out to win the presidency. And most of those people actually aren't involved in the Democratic primary. They're really hard to reach. They're really hard to motivate. And to me, that has to be a Manhattan project in this campaign, whoever the nominee is. Uh, and, and it's going to take an enormous amount of work um, and focus and, and resources to get that done. And, and David Plouffe, this book obviously is is trying to empower individuals and, and encourage them to, to get out. This is not – you've already written the book on on how to organize a campaign, how to put together a campaign after after running a, a historically successful one. Uh, this The Biden campaign looks nothing like the Obama campaign. Am I right in saying that? I, I just – it doesn't feel – if you could talk about the Democratic establishment, it doesn't feel like – anything that David Plouffe would have or did put together in 2008. Is that, is that accurate? Well, 
you know, I think some of his primary strengths are similar, right? So one of the reasons Barack Obama's the nominee was we really performed exceedingly well in the South, and we put together a coalition of suburban voters and African-American voters. So so Biden's, you know, done that in the primary as of last night. But the structure of the um, campaign, I mean, this this, this is... This you're just, talking about the campaign the itself. The campaign itself. I understand where the coalitions and what the yeah. Biden coalition might look like, but the campaign itself, this is, you know, no disrespect to these guys because it's obviously worked, but this is a ragtag group compared to what the machine that, that, uh, that you were able to build. Well, the, you know, they've been under-resourced. The thing they've right. been consistent about, like, and I've had Greg Schultz on my podcast a couple of times, is they're very focused on, you know, delegates and certain CDs where they thought they would overperform. So I think they did a good job of understanding the delegate game. But, yeah, they've got to add a lot of reinforcements now. And I look at it even, yeah, part of it's to, you know, strengthen themselves so they can close out the primary. But a lot of it's to get ready for Trump, who's looming out there. Uh, and no one's been as focused on re-election in American political history as Donald Trump and has all the money in the world and all the reinforcements he'll need from, um, you know, his allies and, and foreign capitals. So, yeah, I mean, where the Biden campaign, they've got to build more uh, ground capacity. And what's interesting is some of the states coming up, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Florida, Arizona are going to be battleground states. So that's a good opportunity to get a head start there. But on just digital sophistication, and this is where my hope is, some of the folks who were part of Bloomberg's very innovative effort, whether they stay on the outside and there's some IE work or some of them decide to go into Biden, he definitely needs that. Um, because, you know, Trump runs a very modern campaign. I mean, they think memes first. They think gifts first. They think visual communication. Uh, and that's the way people consume content these days and share it. And so I do think the Biden campaign has a lot of work to do there. I'm worried about that, honestly, with any of our candidates who is running. I don't see anybody who is, uh, you know, meeting this moment to the extent Trump and his campaign are. Uh, in terms of understanding how people receive information uh, and share it and create it. Um, we have a lot of work to do there. One part of our exit polls that I found really interesting uh, last night was the number of Democratic supporters that, that said that they were giving the thumbs up to the concept of Medicare for all. In six states that Joe Biden won, there were still more people, a majority of Democrats, saying that they supported it. And some of these numbers were big. In Texas, 64 percent. In Minnesota, 62 percent. Obviously, voters make up their mind uh, on a whole range of things on any given day. Um, there's not one factor that, that sends someone over the edge for one candidate. But what do you make of that and where the party's headed? So it's interesting. Um, um, you know, the folks who did the exit poll may disagree with me, but my view on that question is, not everybody's viewing it strictly through the lens of, are we talking about Bernie's Medicare for all or Pete's Medicare for all that wanted or Biden's public option, right? I think generally people would like Medicare, our primary voters would like Medicare to be available to more people. So I would be careful about overly interpreting that number as despite people supporting Bernie on Medicare for all, they voted for Biden. I actually think that people view that question a little bit more broadly. Um, Listen, I think if Biden is the nominee, I think his health care position allows us to get back on offense a little bit uh, more easily, uh, like we were in 2018. But I still think Bernie Sanders, my view is if we can't win the health care debate with Donald Trump, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden, we don't deserve to win the presidency. Like, seriously, if we can't win that debate, and that's going to be a big part of advertising in the debates, but also average everyday people, as I capture in my book, you know, going out there and making the case, and you can make it in such a personal uh, way. So I would be careful about overly interpreting that number. Um, but to the extent there are people who are saying, I support Medicare I mean, the question all, does say... Get rid of all private insurance. 
Yeah, but I, I just think people, uh, having done a lot of research through the years on healthcare, I would just be careful about that. But but even people who um, say yes, I want no private insurance and I only want the government and I want it to happen right away. Um, I still think electability is trumping that, right, and people right. see Joe Biden to be the more electable candidate. And I think, particularly the African American community, I think we're there. There's there's been reporting on this, so so I think people are appreciating this. But his strength in suburban areas was super important, both for his ability to secure the nomination, but but as part of that, also to to speak to an electability case. Uh, and execute on that, because the suburbs obviously helped uh, elect Obama the first time, reelected him. They were so key to us driving our big uh, night in 2018 all around the country. Uh, and if we have a candidate who can hold on to that suburban strength in the general election and not bleed it to Trump, where Trump's you know already spending a lot of time and money trying to pick off a percent or two there, um, we're going to be in really good shape. So um, you know, I think what's interesting coming out of tomorrow night. You know, Bernie's electability case that I can drive big turnout amongst youth. We haven't seen the turnout, but I think he can say, listen, I'm the one that inspires passion, and that's powerful. I think Biden now can say, I can drive. I've driven record turnout in African-American communities, which we know will need to be Trump, but I've also driven really strong turnout in the suburban communities. So, again, that's another. It's like 96 hours ago, did anybody think Joe Biden would have the stronger electability argument? <laughs> I don't think we did. Uh, and now I think it's it's incontrovertible that, you know, he at least has one as powerful as the one Bernie's been making. David Fluff, before we let you go, two quick ones. Uh, first, what what percentage likelihood do you do you assign to Joe Biden being the nominee as a, on today's facts? Well, he's in. I, I don't know about percentage. I mean, it's his race to lose now, and I say that just because you know he's got states coming up when he should win a margin. So if we're sitting here on the morning of March 18th, and Biden somehow hasn't won states like you know George, uh, sorry, well, 17th will be Florida and Mississippi. If he's not won those by at least 20 points. This may be closer and go longer. Uh, from the morning of March 25th, if Biden hasn't won Georgia at least 65-35, let's say 62-38, um, then something's gone wrong. But if if we project the election results from tomorrow in the remaining parts of the calendar, Bernie's going to win some states, Biden's going to win some states, but Biden's the one that's got the states he can win by margin. So I guess that's what I'd say. It's his race to lose, and part of him, I think, securing his position in the race is he's got to perform well. Um, and so far, the last few days have been good. But, you know, he's got to prove that day in and day out. And finally, what is David Plouffe's tipping point state? What's the state that uh, if you know the answer to, you know who's going to win the Electoral College and win the presidency in the fall? Well, I'm going to give you two, Wisconsin or Arizona. And I think, um, um, you know, in a really competitive race, which I think we're headed to, I certainly like our chances in Michigan and Pennsylvania, but they'll be close. I have to fight for every vote. Um, and then I think Wisconsin is going to be a little bit harder than those two states. And so we got to throw everything we can into Wisconsin, but, you know, that's 10 electoral votes. Arizona's 11. Um, we need to treat Arizona, I think, equally um, intensively. Um, and I'd also look really hard at, at North Carolina, Florida, and Georgia, um, just because I never would want to go to a presidential race saying, you know what, I've got to win all the battlegrounds. Um, I think that's dangerous because historically we see that's hard to do. So I think it's Wisconsin or Arizona, um, and I hope we treat Arizona um, – as intensively as we do Wisconsin. Um, and if we do, um, now again, the nightmare scenario for the country would be uh, the Democratic nominee wins Michigan and Pennsylvania. 
Trump holds on to Wisconsin. The rest of the 16 map stays constant. And we're waiting around for like a month for the Arizona results. Can you imagine how horrible that'll be? No. Uh, so <laughs> let's let's try and avoid that for the country and, and win Wisconsin, too, and maybe a couple others. But uh, I would put those two uh, inequality right now. Um, and, and those are my tipping point states. All right. David Fluff, the new books are called The Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump and Ripples of Hope. We appreciate you being here. Thank you, David. Guys, thanks so much for having me. All right. Okay, Thank you. Bye. So, Mary Alice, I, I, Obama's hand in this, I think, is going to be something that's dissected for a long time. Something changed over the weekend. Uh, the fact that that uh, the president, the former president called Joe Biden after South Carolina, he had not called Pete Buttigieg or Bernie Sanders after their victories. The fact that we learned about that phone call and then the way that everything fell into place to have the high profile endorsements. It certainly felt like something was going on uh, that would feed Frankly, the paranoia and the, uh, the the concerns and complaints of a lot of folks who support Bernie Sanders about someone trying to put their their finger on the scale. But the, all of that said, it was the voters who weighed in, and you'll be clear about this: this was voters who weighed in. The establishment support can change things, uh, but ultimately, a lot of people who put their hopes and aspirations into a candidate decided to put it with one candidate or the other. Yeah, but it is remarkable how quickly that that uh, groundswell of support from D.C. came behind Joe Biden uh, because Joe Biden didn't really change. I mean, he won big in South Carolina, but that was also the state that he was supposed to win. He still the facts were still that he had underperformed in the other states, um, that he barely had any money. So it is just incredible to me that you have um, David Pluff essentially sounding like a campaign surrogate for most of that interview. I mean, beyond the point of thinking, wow, it's amazing, and look at what, what Joe Biden did, he wants to make sure that he gets him over the finish line. Well, I, yeah, I, I, I think that was the consensus view in, in, in saying it was a two-way race uh, over the weekend was, was, was that. I mean, Biden you know, gets the votes. He earns it on his own. I think David's point about drawing on a reservoir of goodwill that he had before this is important here. Uh, Joe Biden was not an unknown quantity exactly. until South Carolina. Right. It's very different than the kind of momentum that Barack Obama got, say, from his from his early uh, from his early wins. This was like returning to where the front runner status had been. Uh, it's just it's just it is an astounding turn of events to say what what happened literally since the last time we, we came on the air on this podcast. Uh, the, the, what, what has happened since then, upending all of the expectations, this historically large field shrinking as quickly as it did. Uh, and the, uh, and, and, and the, the, when, when Bernie Sanders was asked that question about delegate math, I think everyone on that stage recognized at that moment that Bernie Sanders was likely to be the person that had the most delegates. Uh, and, and the question was, how do, you, how do you block that? And that conversation has flipped entirely. You know, Joe Biden um, has has something much bigger than national name recognition. I mean, he just he has this this legacy and a brand that is so trusted. And I think that we're seeing him as a response to an unbelievable amount of of anxiety and fear in 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 the Democratic Party and and hope for something that feels calming. You know, I think that everything from how Democrats view the president and they you know they see him as just as Chaos. I mean, I think that that uh, Pluff called him a monster, right, when he was talking to us just a few minutes ago. Uh, but also just how they see parts of the world right now, with with everything from the the virus to tornadoes. There's an idea of wanting someone in the White House who would be um, familiar and safe and comfortable. And I think that that 
sort of legacy and brand of Joe Biden is is incredibly powerful. And and, and I don't think we're going to see another period in politics like this maybe ever again. I, I just uh, the, the 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 convergence of forces and events of the last few days to make this worth this race is, is just absolutely mind boggling. Uh, well, that does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. We hope to top all of this in the week ahead, although uh, <laughs> I could also use a little rest at this point. Uh, for Mary Alice Parks uh, and for John Carl, who dished us for The View today. Very, very questionable decision, but I guess we'll, we'll take it. Uh, I'm Rick Klein. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to Trevor Hastings. Thanks to Angie Yak and to Avery Miller and the whole team here. We'll catch you again next week.